one way to sort of mitigate some of that risk is to build your prototype in a really scrappy way and get it in front of people and validate it before you actually then say, okay, now I'm going to learn how to code and start building things. And so I was talking to Grand Circus about that, and I had, that's how I had met them before. That's Tara Reed. She's the CEO of Collecto, and she's also the Code 2040 Entrepreneur Residence at Grand Circus in Detroit. She was just talking about how she has successfully been able to minimize these kinds of risks. Underrepresented folks, so women, people of color, often aren't able to like make that jump very quickly to, oh, I'm gonna like drop everything I'm doing and build a startup because there's a lot of risk there. And so the more you have to think about your socioeconomic status and think about like your money and, and saving and your kids and taking care of your kids, like the less likely you are to be that like young, you know, college guy who just like drops everything to build a startup. You're listening to Techpreneurs, a podcast about the stories of tech entrepreneurs. My name is Clark Buckner. This episode of Techpreneurs features Tara Reed and how she built her tech startup without writing a single line of code. She shares in this interview why and how it has enabled her to grow faster. We're happy to bring you these stories with the support of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, one of the Google for Entrepreneurs tech hubs. I cannot be more excited to have you right here along with me. I hope you subscribe. Visit us at techpreneurs.co or just search Techpreneurs anywhere you download podcasts. Enjoy. Take me back to the time when you were in a place in your life when you did not plan at all to get into technology. Yeah, that, that was not the plan at all. I've always been a big planner, though. Um, so I have, I frequently have a plan and I like run full force at it. And then at some moment, I might decide that there's something else that I'm interested in, but I run full force at all times. So there were a bunch of other things. This is when I was in college, right? I went to undergrad at Columbia, and I was thinking about a lot of different things I was interested in. I grew up uh, with my dad as the COO of the Los Angeles Urban League, um, and they do a lot of work to get people of color in placed in jobs and job training. Um, and so I'd grown up around that. There was a time where I wanted to do a lot of nonprofit work. Um, I thought that I wanted to be a lawyer for a while, and I then fell into finance. There, I was, it was really interested in a lot of things, but what I found across the board was that there were, in all of those types of roles that I took, I was really interested in business strategy and business process reengineering. And so I then sort of fell in, by accident into business, um, and I applied for a business analyst role at Google one summer. And uh, the plan was not to necessarily go to Google. It was like I applied on a whim, right? My plan was to work in finance. That was like where I really had most of my, my bets. And I'd gotten an offer for an internship at JP Morgan. Um, and that was the plan. And then last minute, Google said, we have this in-house startup team called Google Offers, uh, which at the time was a competitor to Groupon. And we have a business analyst role for you. Do you want to take it? And so I knew nothing about tech, but it was my interest in business that got me there. And then at Google, I just fell in love with tech and worked really closely with product managers and devs and all sorts of other roles. And so I fell into tech by accident that way. Where were you at in your in the in the country with this internship? Were you at Google? Was it? Yeah, right? I went out to Mountain View. So yeah. what about it? When how long did it take for you to fall in love with tech? Being in Mountain View at Google. <laughs> Uh, not very long. Not very long. Um, 
the finance world that I was in didn't have ping pong tables and didn't have this like really uh, open, airy culture. I found that I worked really well that way. Um, I was really motivated. And so I think to like work in that setting, such an open setting, you have to be like a really motivated person anyway. Um, and so I felt like I fit in really well. Um, I really liked the culture. I really liked the approach to problem solving, the iterative design approach to problem solving. And so got sucked in. That's really neat. And now, how long were you there before your next big step at another really big tech company? Yeah, so I was there for the summer. I did a summer internship. And at Google, I was working on uh, Google offers and finding um, the best places for Google to do partnerships with small businesses around offers so like the local pizza shop does an offer to get people to come back and they do like a you know free slice of pizza or free soda when you buy a slice of pizza kind of thing so it was a really interesting segue to foursquare um, where i worked next because at the time foursquare was figuring out its monetization plan and they were thinking about working with small businesses and so you check in at foursquare and you get some sort of reward for doing that and so i came on to help them think that through what the small business uh, strategy would be uh, to eventually monetize and also to market. Were you there for two years? Is that right? Uh, no, I was there for less. So I went back to, so when I interned for the summer, I went back to school. I had a couple months of school left. And what I ended up doing was I pushed all of my classes to evening classes. So I was working at Foursquare full time. Um, and I was there for probably a year or so. You're yeah. at Foursquare, mm-hmm. and then your next thing. Yeah. Where's that at? I went to Seattle and took a job at Microsoft. So you moved to Seattle for a Microsoft yes, gig. Yes, I did. Two years. Yes. You were there. And now moving to Microsoft, you're really in the big corporate mindset. You're really excited. Yeah. You have the, the dream for finances and all that. So it's by the time your you know, two years went by, mm-hmm. that's when you start your idea for your startup. Yeah, yeah. So when did that be, started a big, as a side project while oh, I was at Microsoft. A hobby or just a side? Good question. Um, it wasn't a hobby. So, okay, what I did was I was on Twitter one day and a friend of mine, his name is Brian Watson, he uh, had at the time was working as an analyst at Union Square Ventures, which is a big VC firm in New York. And he tweeted uh, that this other guy that he worked with uh, had left Union Square Ventures and had rented out Kickstarter's old office in New York and was starting this thing called Orbital. And Orbital was going to have a boot camp that was going to help people launch their side projects. So it was sort of like, I call it a side project accelerator program. I think Whoa, they, they just called really it a awesome. boot camp program. Yeah. So what was cool about that was that I got a chance to think about my idea as not necessarily something that was going to be this huge business, which is the approach that I think a lot of accelerators take. Um, But to think about my think about Collecto as something that people just want to use and people find useful. And so the intention wasn't necessarily to like leave Microsoft to run this. Um, it was to like build something that solved my own problems. I at the time was looking for cool art for my home, and I'd moved into this like cushy tech job, and I was like looking to live with cool, unique things, right, and have conversation starters when my friends came over. And um, I was solving my own problem. I started blogging about art and my process of learning about collecting art and I got lots of interest from people I knew and then people I didn't know and so I started building 
a, at the time, project around it. Now, for someone like you, business strategy, business engineering, you started, when yeah. you started this whole journey, that was your passion. So yeah. it sounds like that's pretty different than art and understanding, you know, the, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. like, how did that, is there, or maybe there is more of a connection there than I think. It's a good question. So I've always been interested in art in general, not necessarily visual art, um, but growing up, I was a dancer, I was a choreographer. Um, I danced competitively for a long time. I've always been really into theater. So like that sort of thing, art in general was really interesting to me. And then when I was in college, I got really interested in visual art. Um, But I never felt like I knew enough about it to be like one of those people that knows everything about art. When I got to Microsoft and I started thinking about my space in a different sort of way when I was living in Seattle, uh, that's when I started getting more interested in visual art. Um, And I happened to have a couple people I knew who owned galleries who sort of took me under their wing and taught me everything I needed to know. That's awesome. So you start scratching your own edge with wanting to create something like this. Now, yeah. something you've done from the beginning, which is really interesting and yeah. really encouraging, is you've been able to do a lot of this without writing any code. Yep. Why has that been so important for you from day one? A couple things. From day one, I wasn't necessarily trying to build a tech company. So from day one, we piloted this, uh, and I made a landing page, And I said, I went out to find people who were interested in getting help from a professional art advisor. Professional art advisors usually require you to have a $10,000 budget. So it's like a really fancy schmancy thing. Um, But I was like, I'm going to make this accessible, this art advisory thing accessible. And so I put up a landing page, found people before I even had any art advisors signed on, right, um, to do this. So the initial business was pairing Uh, individuals with their own art advisor to help them find cool art for their home. And then as we did that more, we learned that there are a lot of pieces of the process that we could automate. And because just of the nature of like the industry, there are very few people in art advisory who are thinking about technology, right? Like those, those places don't really overlap very much. And so um, there was a bunch of educating the user about like how does art work and how does art get priced and like how do I know if this how do I explain what I like in the first place all of those things could be automated and then the process of finding the artwork um, could really be automated and the sorts of questions that we ask people and the inputs could all be automated and so just based on my background in like marketing and in business I'd worked at Google Google has this like huge Google AdWords platform where like if I own a coffee shop I can go target people who want a hipster coffee shop in Austin for example Um, but for artists and galleries there's no way to like find someone who likes exactly what it is that you're selling on your wall in your gallery and so uh, where we are now is like we can really at this point build this like targeted advertising platform for art. Um, but the idea of like matching people to artwork based on their taste has never been explored before outside of what we're doing. Um, usually you go to the art, you go to a gallery, you go find it. It doesn't come to you based on your like tastes and what somebody knows about you. It's really exciting. Yeah. A big part of the reason we're doing these interviews is to talk with each of the EIRs at the different Google for Entrepreneurs tech hubs. And yeah. I know you're really excited about this because you've already, previous to this, you were already 
you know, in contact with Grand Circus and you had a lot of ideas with things you were already kind of up to and doing. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you're feeling with all of this and what you're looking forward to. Yeah. So I'm really excited to be working as an EIR in Detroit, mainly because I think Detroit's a really interesting market to be working on tech diversity initiatives, specifically because Detroit's a city that, if I have my number right, it's either 83 or 84% African-American, um, which is unprecedented. It's, it's the largest uh, major city, black population, largest major city. Um, so the... But when you look around at the tech community, it doesn't represent that even a little bit. And so I think it's just a really interesting market to be focusing on these things um, and pretty different from a lot of the other markets where this program is happening um, in that there's so much diversity in the city itself um, and it's not represented. So I'm going to be working with Grand Circus um, on a handful of programs to make the tech community look like the city um, or look more like the city because I think that's really important. A big part of Collecto with starting out was minimizing risk. You, yes. You're doing that through validation, through yes. having a lot of conversation. So as it relates to minimizing risk for someone to go into tech as a career, what are some ways you've seen that work and yeah. maybe ways that you're looking to implement that with this role? Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So the things I've seen work and things that have worked for me with Collecto, and then I'll transition it to this role. Things that have worked for me with Collecto have been building a service first and then understanding how to build technology around it second. And the reason I say that is because when you build just the technology first, you go heads down into your computer and you don't talk to any of your end users. When you build a service, you are forced to talk to your end users. Um, and that was something that like really, really, the way that I built Collecto um, was shaped largely around that. We built a service first. We learned um, all sorts of things that you need to ask people in order to figure out what sort of art they like. For example, we get a lot of middle-aged guys who like street art, and then you show them really cool street art, but sometimes street art is a little bit more risque, and they say, I have kids, I can't have this in my house. And so literally asking someone, is adult-friendly subject matter or family-friendly subject matter important to you when you're thinking about street art? And like learning that about someone over time in terms of what they like in art is really critical. We wouldn't have known that if we weren't talking to each of these people at first, right? So we wouldn't have known to like build that into our technology and our taxonomy, um, the way we match people to artwork. So build a service first. I think that that directly relates to the sorts of things we should be doing in Detroit and the things that I'm going to be working on in Detroit, which is I think that there's a lot of dialogue and conversation that needs to happen around this topic in the city that's not happening yet. And so before I go out and like build a bunch of programs or build, I don't know, any sort of like platform um, or fancy anything, right? Um, I think that we need to have this conversation with constituents. Why does the, the tech community look this way? What if you people feel like the barriers are and then we can be better equipped to tackle them? Um, I love yeah. that. So I just asked you, what do you think are some of the barriers? And you're basically telling me, you know what? That's not for me to answer. It's for me to go out and talk to people who are I'm actually serving for them to answer and tell me. Yeah, that. yeah. Is that right? Yeah, and like some of it is reading in between the lines because people don't always know what they need. Um, but yeah, I am talking to people who are interested in technology in Detroit, and people those people who are of color but are not in tech 
why are they not in tech? Oh, it's something I feel like I couldn't do. It wasn't for me. There's no one else. It looks like whatever those answers are, knowing that answer. And then also going to people who hire in tech in Detroit and saying like, why don't you have anybody of color? Uh, why don't you have any women? Why don't you have any you know LGBT people? And getting their answers um, then allow me to like have the tools to to bridge that the gap. data and the, and the validation. Yeah, wow. maybe I'm just like a nerdy, well, that makes qualitative and quantitative data person. I love it. I know it's like a great blend from the core of who you are because you love the yeah. the engineering of, of all of this. So you're like kind of like making a smile on your face right now. About yeah, so I know you love it. So is it scary at all to have tough conversations like this? I mean. Or do you just show up and just start talking? Or how do you, I don't know, how are you feeling about that? I think it's often hard to start these conversations. So, like, one of the things that I really want to do is get some numbers out on, like, what diversity in tech looks like in Detroit. And so that might mean we need to do some surveying, whatever it is. Um, Because as we've seen, when Google releases their diversity numbers, things happen people start having conversations things change um there's also a woman who runs a project called project diane that is surveying women black women in the united states who have raised venture capital and raised money for their company ceos um and it turns out that there are very few of them out there right it's just like really hard for these people to raise money for their companies and so um, getting some, like putting that out there starts conversations, particularly among people in technology who like numbers. I love it. Well, how can someone connect with you, follow along Collecto, connect with Grand Circus, all of the above? Yeah. So you can check out Collecto at Collecto.com, K-O-L-L-E-C-T-O.com. And then, um, I'm pretty active on Twitter at Tara Reed underscore, and my last name's R-E-E-D. Wonderful. All right. Well, I'm so excited for what you're doing, Tara. It's such a pleasure to be able to meet you in person, and I hope we can keep the conversation going. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. This season of Techpreneurs is powered by the Nashville Entrepreneur Center in support of the Google for Entrepreneurs Tech Hub Network. Find out more about the EC and how to become a member at ec.co. To learn more about Code 2040 and how to apply to be an entrepreneur residence, go to code2040.org slash entrepreneurs. We hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Thomas K.R. Stovall, founder of Candid Cup. He's the entrepreneur residence at 1871. I think the fastest way for us to really, really make impact is collaboration. The thing that I want to leave behind from my one year as being the entrepreneur residence for Chicago is creating collaborations literally with every single organization in the city that is doing something, leading initiatives, leading programs for people of color and technology. There is no reason for us to be in silos. We all got to be working together and we need to know what each other's goals are. And so, you know, when you do that city by city, state by state, I think that's the way to make the fastest impact as opposed to everybody working in silos. Collaboration, relationship, that's how we get there. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Techpreneurs.